When you think about most of the institutions that we're a part of in our lives, none of them look like these companies. When a new kid is born, we throw in massive parties because the family grew by one. We added one person to this family, and it's so exciting to have a new person in the family. Most companies are relatively static in their size. You know, they grow a couple percentage points a year, and that's a phenomenal growth rate for most companies. But the companies that we're a part of, the growth rates are phenomenal. You know, when you're in the early stage, you're doubling year over year. And then later stage companies, you could be growing 30, 40, 50% year over year off a pretty big base. That's kind of mind breaking. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is both personally and professionally to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks. I appreciate you doing this, man. Are you in uh, central Missouri hometown? I am. My wife and I both grew up here. We lived about 10 years in the Bay Area and then came back after our first daughter was born. Just want to be closer to home. My father-in-law had a little bit of health issues, so he's just easier for us to do it and nice to have the family help and all that good stuff. Totally. Is it odd walking around the town that you grew up in and you're running like a multi-billion dollar tech company? Everyone must know you. Nah, not really. Like most people don't Come know on. who you I am. You don't get stopped on the street? Nah, never happens. <laughs> and you love that? Yeah, of course. Like, why would I want that? <laughs> the company's fully remote. You could live in like Hawaii. Is it tempting to want the houses everywhere and work from wherever you want? I don't know. I can't imagine winters in Missouri are the most pleasant. I used to live in Chicago. Winter in Chicago is quite something. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's when you question your choices the most. That's when you're like, is this really what I want? But, you know, I got a young family and like the kids knowing grandma and knowing aunties and like, you know, being able to go hang out with them and all that good stuff. That makes it all worth it uh, in the end. And I don't need the houses everywhere and all that sort of stuff. It's like you realize at the end of the day, there's very few things that you really need. You just want to make sure that those are there and you got those. When did you realize that? Meaning, have you always known or was there a moment when you're like, all right, I'm making more money than I ever had in my, in my life. This company is more successful than I ever could have imagined, but my lifestyle hasn't changed at all. I don't know. I just wonder, have the roots always been there or was there a moment in time that you realized that this isn't what you thought it would be? I've always been like a little bit of a minimalist and like stuff is not the thing that sort of makes me click and gets me excited. You know, the things I care about and love, like I'll invest in those, but those tend to be more like people and things like that. And you know, you realize big houses, lots of travel, all that sort of stuff. That's not everything. Like there's headaches and stuff that come with that. Keeping your lifestyle like pretty lean and focused on the things that you actually care about. It's just simpler. Simple's nice. I totally agree. During COVID, I was traveling around the country and I had a rule where I'd only bring a carry-on suitcase. And when I get tired of my clothes, I'd go to a Goodwill or whatever and just get rid of it and buy new stuff at the next town. And I remember this weird feeling of it was just so liberating. I had all this stuff at home. I had a car and clothes, shoes. It turns out I really didn't need any of it to be happy. Now, of course, I've managed to reaccumulate all of my things, but <laughs> there's this feeling of nimbleness that I'm fond of. Yeah. I was so light on my feet. It's hard to explain. I mean, it makes sense. My sister's a traveling nurse and she, she does the same thing. She just up and goes to the next place every three months or so and travels with a bag, basically. But she realizes like the thing she wants to see is see the world. And like the stuff is not the thing that matters. It's the people and the places and stuff that fills her cup. For sure. Do you ever miss the Bay? 
Oh, yeah. Especially in those minus five days. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. How long were you here? You moved out here when Zapier got accepted into YC, right? Yeah, we were there for about 10 years. We make it back a couple times a year, just some for work, some for just catching up with friends and things like that. Makes sense. Super excited to be doing this. When I was researching you and the company, I couldn't help but feel like there's no way you're not doing this company forever. Like, I can't imagine there being a next act for you besides Zapier. Do you agree with that? It's hard to think what that would be. I heard Zuck's comment on that once around the Facebook Yahoo deal that could have happened. Zuck sort of had this realization where it's like, well, what would I do if I sold? He's like, I think I just start another social network. And he's like, yeah, but I like the one that I got. <laughs> so it's a little bit like that where it's like, I like what I'm doing. I like what this is. I'm sure there will be a day when there's something else. I want to go see something else, do something else. But I like what I'm doing. I like what this is. And I, I have a hard time figuring out what else it could be that like challenges me, pushes me, rewards me in the same way. Do you feel like there's something comforting about on your lowest day? You're like, you know what? I'm freezing. It's cold in Missouri. One of my key employees just left. I couldn't recruit this key executive. Had a bad month, bad meeting, bad quarter, whatever. But deep down, you're like, what else am I going to do? What else could I possibly go do that would give me more fulfillment? Even the worst day is probably better than the alternate in your mind, which is nothing. I don't know. There must be something nice about it. For sure. I mean, I've been doing it for coming up on 13 years now and you do it long enough and tackle everything and you just start to realize, okay, I tackled that thing. I'll tackle the next thing. I'll tackle the next thing. It's not that you'll do a good job every single time, but you can get through it and you can figure out what comes next. And most companies, like especially Silicon Valley, like we compress these things down to being like little pressure cookers where it's like, hey, we got to go. We got to get it done. And what's next year? What's next year? And even like VC fund like, like VCs will like to tell you like, oh, we think long term. We really think long term. Yeah, you have 10 year fund cycles. That's not long term. If you really want to think long term, you realize the challenges of today, they come and pass. Like I couldn't tell you what I was doing, what the tough thing I was doing five years ago was. I mean, I could probably figure it out. Like if you ask me to think, but it's like I solved it I figured it out or it wasn't that important. I mean, it didn't solve it. It just wasn't that important. And so I think if you really insist on like thinking long term, it just it makes it easier to deal with the parts of the job that truly do suck because there are parts of the job that truly do suck. Like what? I mean, if you've run it, you made a poor hire, something on the team's not working, there's morale issues, or maybe there's a customer that's really upset or like some part of the product you can't quite figure out. Depending on your personality type, some of those problems are like, no, I actually like those types of problems. And some of them you might be like, I never want to do that again. <laughs> that really stinks. But you find your way through it. As the company has scaled away from the early days, do you find yourself having more of those problems or less of those problems that suck? I had a mentor once because I was asking, like, when does it get easier? And uh, the comment they shared was, well, it never gets easier, but you get better and you hire better and better people around you if you're doing it right. And so we're dealing with more problems today than we've ever dealt with inside of Zapier. And I'm sure that will be true 10 years from now. But if we've done it well, the folks that are here are better than we were today. Like, I'll be better than I was today. The folks who've stuck around from the ride will be better than they were. And then the folks that we've hired in are hopefully better than we were. And that'll just make it those sucky things, those hard things, just increases our odds of handling them well. Is it surprising to you that at this point in the company, again, like $5 billion valuation, hundreds of millions of revenue, that... There's still so much in the company that 
is broken and that sucks. Like if you could have asked the Wade who was looking at companies in the early days that you looked up to that were at this point of their scale journey, there is no way you could have thought, man, there's all these things that are broken in their company. There's no way you could have thought that. I mean, yes and no. Yes, it's surprising in the sense that like exactly what you said. You know, you look up to these companies and whatever company you look up to and you're just like, holy cow, they just seem to have it all put together. It all works. It all goes well. And then no, in the sense that every step of the way you get to meet more people and you get to meet the people that are stage ahead of you and you get to see how they work and you see all these smart folks and you start to realize, oh, they're not so different. (laughs) I remember one time we had, this was early in Zapier's days and there was a company I won't name, but was like growing like crazy, just like an insane fast company. It was incredible. And, you know, there's definitely some envy from that. And we're close partners with him. And I remember this funny phenomenon happened where we were trying to get something specific done and uh, got introduced to the person that was in charge of it. And they were like, oh, I'm happy to help. I got a new person starting next week. They're going to be the person that runs this area. Like, okay, sounds great. The next week they introduced us to this new person, have a chance to talk with them. They're like, yeah, I'm really excited about this thing. This sounds great. I have a new person starting next week. They're going to be the person that's going to go tackle this. Next week, get introduced to this person. Get on the call. Oh, I'm so excited. This is going to be great. I have a new person starting next week that's going to be the one that tackles this. And I'm just like, oh boy. I'm like, okay, once you all sort of have all your people started, let us know and figure this out. And you just sort of realize like, oh, and these companies are scaling up so fast. Everyone's just kind of holding on for dear life, just trying to make sure the thing doesn't break. And you get that up so little bit of that inside look and you start to realize we're all just figuring it out as we go. We're just trying to make good choices. And yeah, there's some like podcasts like this and books and people sharing the resource and like we're all sharing best practices. And, you know, some of those tips are really helpful and useful and like help you avoid common pitfalls. But at the end of the day, there's all these situational things for you that you got to just figure out like, you know, we're doing this whole remote thing and like there's not that many people doing it. And so you're like, well, is it the same as building it in a company? A lot of it is the same, but then there's some parts that you're like, I think it's different. Is this the part that's different? And so then you've got your solution to whatever particular problem and you take a swing at it and you realize like, yep, it won that one. Let's try a different one. It's funny. I'm working very closely with one of our portfolio companies and have been since I started at KP. Now it's become one of the envies of Silicon Valley. Ripping. This company is on fire. Every other portfolio company is benchmarking to this company. But I have this weird feeling when people are describing that they want to be this company, I'm like, are you sure? Do you want the good and the bad? Or do you just want the things that you see from the outside looking in? Because from my vantage point, I'm just dealing with problems, you know, and trying to feel all of these challenges that they're having. And I think you just miss that from the outside. And I think that you just want to inherit the good things that you see, meaning maybe they're incredible at product, but the dark side of that is maybe the go-to-market team is weak or whatever. Distribution is bad. Product is great. Yeah. You can't just have one without the other. This feeling of envy that you describe, it's like, well, you're only envious of the Instagram of that company that's just showing one small fraction of their Mm -hmm. life. 100%. If that makes sense. Is that how you meant it when you said envy? Yeah, I think so. And I think the thing I've come to realize is like a lot of these companies, the thing that we are envious of, the thing that we're trying to mimic is the insane product market fit that they get. There is just this, like when you really get it right, 
it truly is the difference between pushing like the boulder up a hill and then chasing after it down the hill. Like it is that difference. And it's so easy to make the mistake of saying, oh, because they have this insane product market fit, they must have every other bit figured out. It's like, oh, they must have figured out pricing and packaging. They must have figured out internal compensation. They must have figured out their management best practices. They must have figured out these other things. And like the other side, you're like, no, 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 we didn't figure it out. And I watch people who now are trying to copy Zapier and this and that and this and that. And some of the times I'll look at them and be like, you're copying a thing that we don't think is actually all that good. And so I think it's really important for people coming up to sort of think on that and learn on that. So especially if you're going to go copy a competitor or like copy what they're doing, I think it's really useful to try and step back and ask, why did they make that choice? Can you like trace back that choice? And look, sometimes you do just want to like copy a thing wholesale. It's like a known solution. It's not that important. But then there's certain things where you want to come back and go like, was that actually the right choice or not? And a lot of the ways you figure that out is by just talking to customers. You talk to your customers, you talk to their customers, you're really trying to understand, do you like this? Do you not like this? What's the problems with this? You kind of just get back to first principles a little bit. Do you remember when the moment flipped for you all from pushing the boulder up the hill to chasing it down the hill? There's one moment that I can think of, but there was... What you're going to say is, I'm trying to write a Hollywood script where it's very rare that product market fit is felt in an instance. Yeah. Before Zapier, I worked at this ed tech startup, very small company, less than 10 people, had a product that used like natural language processing, attempted to like automatically grade essays and things like that. Something that candidly, like an LLM probably do pretty well today. But at the time, it was like a tough thing. It was like involved a lot of training to get these things right. But when it worked, it really did work well. And I was brought in to try and figure out how to sell the thing and do marketing for it. Candidly, I was more or less an intern at the time. Didn't know much of what I was doing, but I was hungry. I was a sponge. I tried to learn as much as I could. And I tried a lot of stuff. Tried every channel you could think of. I tried doing direct sales, tried doing BD, tried doing a bunch of marketing stuff. And just like none of it would work. None of it would work. And for a long time, I was just convinced I was bad at my job. Like, I was like, they're going to figure it out. And they're going to fire me. Maybe I was bad at my job. I don't know. But eventually I sort of thought was like, it has to be something else. Maybe to just save my own ego. It's like, it has to be something else. And, you know, that's where I started looking at things like this is about when like lean startup was getting popular and like four steps of the epiphany and all that good stuff. And started to realize, oh, do people actually want this? Because this is a thing that mattered. But the story here is like, I just couldn't get people to care about this thing. We couldn't get people to care about this thing. Then you contrast that with my first experience with Zapier. You know, we built this hacky prototype. It barely worked, but we were like, we want to get some people looking at this. We want to get some folks playing around with this. And I found this user forum where Andrew Warner, he's the, runs this podcast Mixergy. He had left a comment. He's like, do you have a PayPal high-rise integration? So it is, I think it was like maybe a year old now comment. So it was kind of dated, but I was like, ah, I'll see if I can cold email him anyway and see if he'll respond. And so I shot him a note and was like, you still looking for a PayPal high-rise integration? If so I got a project I'm working on that might be able to help you out. And uh, he emails back. He's like, I'm good, but uh He'll tell me more about the project. And I was like, well, let's see if there's something else he could get. Looked at his website, looked like he had Wufu, which is a form software installed. And it looked like his email provider was Aweber. And so I was like, okay, I'm gonna get him this way. And so I emailed him back and said like, build this software that'll help you integrate your apps and you can integrate Wufu and whoever and XYZ and stuff like that. And he emails back right away and was like, oh, I really need a Wufu Aweber thing. Can I get access to this stuff? So I pinged Brian and Mike. I'm like, hey, can we get Wufu and Aweber on this? Because we hadn't built those yet. And so next night, shot Andrew a note. It's like, yeah, we got it ready. Here's access. You go sign up and try and use this thing. He couldn't figure it out at all. So two or days later, he emails out. It's like, wait, can you jump on Skype? Help me out with this thing. So I get on Skype and I just try and walk him through setting it up. And I'm just watching him try and use the product. 
And he's struggling. It's not because he's not smart. It's because the product is just not very good. To really illustrate here, there was a drop down that'll let you pick which form you wanted from Wufu. And instead of putting the names of the forms, it was the ID numbers. And so, of course, he didn't know the IDs of his Wufu. Like, who knows that? Nobody knows that. That's the level of quality that the product was at. Anyway, we get to the end, we get his apps turned on, we go to test it, and he fills out the form on Wufu, we go check in Aweber to see if the email address is in there, and sure enough, it's there. And his reaction is like, oh my god, Wade, this is literally going to change how I run my business. And I just compared and contrasted my two experiences. One, the EdTech startup, where I'm like, I'm doing everything possible. The product's kind of good there. Like, it's pretty polished. Things kind of work. I just couldn't get it to happen. And then over here, where Andrew, product feels broken to me. But at the end of it, he's like, so excited. And I was like, oh, I think if we can make this actually work and not be such a crummy experience, I think we got onto something. So that was like the first moment. Then it wasn't like from that moment on, it was like off until the race. It was, it was just like, a lot of grind work for many years. We sort of steadily grew, and in hindsight, you look and the growth rates are impressive, but the next moment I think we really felt it was probably five years later. This was in 2016, the launch of multi-step Zaps. So for a long time, Zaps, you could only have a single trigger and a single action. A lot of folks wanted to build workflows. They wanted to be able to like automate a whole chain of events. And finally, in 2016, we launched this thing. And usually when you launch a feature inside these products, what happens is you get kind of like the spike of interest, the spike of demand where people are like, oh, cool, that's exciting. And then it levels off to a new baseline. And the baseline's usually only modestly higher than where you were before. Like maybe you're getting 5% more interest or 10% more interest or whatever. So we launched multi-step zaps and we get that big spike, probably doubles the amount of like top of funnel and then folks that are trying out the product. And then it never peaks back down. The next week, still double. The next week after that, still double. And I was just like, holy cow, I think we're really on to something again. So there's only been a few moments like that where you really feel like, holy smokes, we had like a step function change in what was possible. The rest of the time, it really is just like you show up every single day and you write code, you talk to customers, you support them, you help them, you're looking for new channels to invest in. And it's the steady compounding of that effort day after day for many, many years that has built this business. There really is only a couple moments where it was like, oh, that really did make it better. Most of Zapier's growth has come from just the steady compounding of effort for 13 years. What's the most common or popular Zapier workflow that folks use? And maybe that might be a helpful way to frame what Zapier does. There really isn't a most common one, but the simple way to think about Zapier is that you can set up very simple integrations or connections. So say you wanted to get notified of a new customer on Stripe. So you could come into Zapier and say like, hey, if I get a new customers in Stripe, I want to post a message to Slack. So that'd be a very simple thing. But then you could expand on that. So a more sophisticated one might say, hey, I get a new lead in Facebook from one of my advertisings and I want to run it through Clearbut to enhance the lead, to get more information on it. Then based on the information we have, we want to route it somewhere, route it to Salesforce because this is a really good lead. Maybe we want to put it on an email list because we want to nurture them. Maybe we want to text a sales rep to be like, you need to pick up the phone right now and call this person. And so you can do these things from like very simple stuff to more sophisticated end-to-end workflows. And that's kind of what Zapier does for you in a nutshell. 
And you can do that on B2B and B2C, correct? Yeah, it's mostly for work, but we certainly support a lot of consumer software and whatnot, you know, email tools and Evernote and note-taking stuff and social networks and things like that. But the vast majority of folks use Zapier at work. Do you ever feel that feeling of envy today? Does that still creep back in? Do you ever find yourself comparing? I mean, I don't know if it's ever envy. I think it's more just like a challenge at this point in time. You're like, I want to prove it to myself. I want to see if I can do what these other folks have done. You basically never raised money after the YC one and a half-ish million dollars of seed until you took secondary in 21 from Sequoia and a few others. Did that pressure change at all in your mind? Did taking any outside capital change the bar in any way? Did it make a difference to you? I don't think so. We've been doing it for so long at that point in time. And I think the difference between me today and me in 2011, my co-founders, 2011 versus now, is I started the company when I was 24. We were all in our early 20s. And I think there's just like a lot of stuff you just don't know. I mean, like, how does the whole industry work? How does VC work? How does all this sort of stuff work? And so you, you lack a certain amount of confidence and familiarity with these things. Maybe it's like a sense of identity. You just don't know who you are at that point in time. And over the course of running the company, you realize who your identity is. And like you tap into that identity. And that really becomes not just a part of, you know, how you operate, but it's a part of how the company operates. You see that in the culture and the folks you hire and how you really try and build it. And it builds a lot of conviction in it. And I think at that point in time, when you're pulling in secondary and there's more folks being added to the cap table or whatnot, the reality is like they're there for who we are. They're bought into the identity of what Zapier is. They don't want to change it. They want to see it grow and blossom and foster and get better. And our ambitions are bigger than what theirs are anyway. And so you get people that are there for who it is, which I think was different than what the seed round is in 2012. 2012, it was just like, we have this cool product. We think it's going to be useful in some ways. And it would be nice to have some money to be able to afford rent. <laughs> it's just a whole different thing. 10 years apart. Totally. Was the point of the secondary just to give liquidity to the employees? Yeah, it's just like early liquidity, like having a kid or you want to buy a house or, you know, things like that. It just like helps some of those early folks take a little bit off the table and keep going. And do you mind if I ask, feel free to not answer, but did you and your two co-founders take secondary? I mean, I took some in 2017. We had another one that we did. Uh, I didn't in 2020 though. You did not? Mm -mm. Why not? I was satisfied at that point in time. It comes back to that minimalist lifeline. Like I had what I needed and I felt like, yeah, what was I going to do with it? <laughs> I'd rather put it in Zapier. Let's imagine an alternate universe where you do have a second act. Again, I, I'm quite convinced that's not happening, but let's just pretend like it is. How much of what you did at Zapier would you try and reapply to new company? I mean, there's a lot I think I would try and reapply. There's a lot of lessons learned for sure, but I reapply everything. I don't know. I definitely know there are things that I would fix. Like I think there are certain things that in the early days you make a decision because you think it's the right call to make, but then later on you come to go like, oh crap, I kind of regret that. And uh, it's so ingrained in the culture and it's probably not the most important thing to change that you're just like, ah, eh, we'll just let it ride and be happy with that. Do you have an example? Well, maybe like a spicy example. Let's talk remote work. Dapier is like famously a fully distributed team. I don't think I would change that necessarily in the next company. But the reason we were distributed was very specific to Zapier. We set up that way because 
Mike was moving back to Missouri after YC and we weren't going to kick him out of the company. He was too important. And then when we thought about hiring, some advice we got was like, well, go work with old colleagues that'll de-risk it for someone that doesn't know how to hire anybody. And when we thought about where our old colleagues are, they're all back in the Midwest. And then you compound that by, it's just easier for a startup to hire outside of the Bay Area. Bay Area, like compensation for engineers is like through the roof, especially in 2012 or whatever. Uh, It's flattened out a little these days, but at that point in time, we could hire amazing engineers throughout like the Midwest and whatnot. It was a big competitive advantage in 2012. And so for us, we played the cards that we were dealt and we're like, let's go do this. It worked really great for us. Now, if I was to do it again, we wouldn't have those same cards. This new company would be in a different position. And would I do it differently? I'd say probably 95% chance I would still run a distributed company just because it's what I know and what I'm good at and all that sort of stuff. But there is a part of me that's like curious. It's fun to be in person. Walking in with the logo you know, on a building. Yeah. Everybody's there in an office together, happy hours. Totally. And I haven't experienced that. And so like, there's part of me that's like, might it be fun to experience that? And I'm like, yeah. Now, when I think about it more, I'm like, yeah, but I'm introverted. I don't know that I'd want to do that every day of the week. Da, da, da. So that's where I'm like, I probably would wind up doing a full remote thing again, but maybe not. So that's like a, perhaps like a bit of a spicy topic that I know, like everybody's got all these return to office stuff and going on and whatnot. Yeah, you were really on the early frontier of that. This idea of a delocation package was super interesting to me. Can you talk about it? Yeah, so I think this was in 2017. We announced a delocation package. Basically what it was, was it was an invert of the relocation package. So all these Silicon Valley companies are paying like 10 grand or whatever to relocate their companies to headquarters in you know the Bay Area. And we flip it on its head and say like, hey, if you're in the Bay Area and you want to go move anywhere else... We'll pay you 10K to move wherever else you wanted to do. And it came about because we'd seen a couple employees who we'd hired who were living in the Bay Area. And as soon as they got hired, they moved somewhere else. Usually they had just started a family or wanting to get back to their families or whatnot. So we're like, hmm, there's something interesting there. I think there are folks who are interested in having a Silicon Valley job, but don't want to live in Silicon Valley. You know, again, the pandemic turned a lot of this stuff upside down. We're like, this is way more common. In 2017, that was a weird thing to have done. The funny thing is I was kind of skeptical of the idea at first. The origination of the idea was at one of our retreats and um, some of our employees were like bantering about and came up with this idea and had pitched me on it. And I was like, I don't know. Like I live in the Bay Area. I like the Bay Area. Like, I don't know if I want to like twist the knife on the Bay Area that much. It's like a great place. Yeah, it's not for everybody, but you know, it's great. Anyway, I remember around the same time we'd hired this PR agencies. One of the first time we're working with a PR firm and they were doing their intake call and just asking us about what's going on at Zapier. Our head of marketing was like running them through like all the highlights, all this top notes. And they get to the end, they're like, anything else? And he hadn't talked to me about it. He goes like, oh, we got this one other thing. We got this delocation package thing that we're probably gonna do considering maybe, you know, we're gonna do. And the agency kind of took that and ran with it a little further than we intended. And like a week from now, I forget who it was, but like Inc or something like that was like, we want to do a story on this. Tell me about this. And I was like, oh crap, I guess we're doing this. So we did it and it blew up. That was probably the first time I experienced Zapier crossing over, not just from the tech news, but actually into mainstream news. It was showing up on the morning shows across, like it was getting syndicated on radio stations and like everyone was talking about this delocation package idea. And I remember one of the news shows on TV wanted to film a story with me on this thing. And we got booted because of that same week, 
the Raiders announced they were moving from Oakland to Vegas. And so they bumped me and I was like, oh, I'm not competing against tech stories. I'm just competing against the news. It was like a totally different experience for us and for Zapier to see like this story crossover into the real news. (laughs) On hiring, do you wish you hired faster or do you think your pace was right? I think our pace was right. We had this philosophy early, don't hire till it hurts. And this served us incredibly well. I think there was a couple benefits we really got from it. One, you know, again, first time founders, we really don't know what we're doing on hiring. And so a steady pace suits us. It allows us to learn and not have like a whole bunch of staff be our guinea pigs. We can do it in a more one-to-one way. The second thing is it meant that before we hired, we were doing the job. So we really understood what exactly each job entailed, what good looked like, what good didn't look like. And then when we went to go hire somebody, it allowed us to be way more specific in what we were looking for. And the side effect there meant that we were hiring folks that maybe were outside central casting. And we could do that because we actually knew the special skill sets to be looking for versus just saying, hey, we want a generic engineer with XYZ or a generic sales engineer that looks XYZ and we're going to go figure this thing out. We get hyper optimized for that. Then these folks join the company. And I think because they're coming from outside central casting, they're stoked to be a part of the company. Like they're loving this. And so morale's high. Like it feels like this gang of outsiders, underdogs, sort of under the radar, like making something magical happen. And so just all these little side effects just reinforced each other in really positive ways. We're hiring outside the Bay Area, too. So like you're getting, again, more outsider feel, more people sort of like hungry and excited for what's trying to go on at Zapier. You know, it's not that we necessarily were really slow about this. You know, if you go back to the early days, like the founding team was three people for a year. The next year, I think we finished the next year around seven people. Finished the year after that, I think around 15 the year after that was about 35. The year after that was maybe 70. So you're seeing like a doubling of headcount pretty consistently every year. You know, when you look at Zapier, it's like, oh, this wasn't like we just never hired people or just didn't do it. But we were still fairly measured in the approach. And I was part of the hiring loop for every single person we hired. I think that really helped me make sure that the consistency was there. Now, in hindsight, maybe I would have done something like Amazon does the bar raisers and like maybe I could have done something like that to offload a little bit of the work. And that would have been a little bit more scalable over time. But I still think the side effect was really good. It only really hurt us back when we launched multi-step zap because we basically doubled in demand more or less overnight. And we just needed the support team needed to be twice as big pretty much overnight. And so that was the first time it was like, oh, crap, this rule, we found its breaking spot. (laughs) This idea of hiring is super fascinating to me. It's the thing that I'm spending almost all of my time on right now because turns out Great startups are really just the composition of great people working in the right direction together. And it strikes me that, especially in Silicon Valley, most folks are hiring people based on their resume, based on their experience. And in many cases, similar to what we just described in the Zapier playbook, like it's never been done before. So like how applicable are some of those experiences? Well, I think there's probably some clues about what those experiences how they shaped you and what your personality is as a result of them. But generally speaking, there's less correlation than I would like to think in that experience. First of all, do you agree with that? 100%. I definitely agree. Well, then the question is, if it's, let's just say 80% intangibles and 20% tangibles, that's a tough reality to face because then you have to be able to figure out, do they have those things? 
Do they have those things? And the challenge with that is number one, you need to know what things are you looking for? Most folks don't because they're unwilling to go do that job, to your point, to really sort through it. Or they're unwilling to go figure out the lowest common denominator characteristics. And then they have to go actually test for that. And that's a whole other battle. How do you think about that? I assume you went down this path yourself. Yeah, it totally resonates. Like I said, one of the things that I think did serve us well in the early days, we went and did the job and it helped us better than pattern match like the folks we were talking with. And resumes can be a trap. Like you worked at XYZ, really cool company. But again, XYZ, really cool company might have just had insane product market fit. And the things you learned there were just like how to hold on for dear life. You didn't necessarily make or break the company. Now that said, also XYZ company probably did some really incredible things. And so there's probably some folks inside that company that were very critical to making those things happen. How do you tell the difference? 13 years, I'm still getting better at that. You got to really just dig in and probe and ask really good questions and you got to use references and you got to talk to folks. And, you know, I think your tuning engine gets better, but hiring is a tough game. It's a hard thing. I'm not sure I did a great job. We did a great job as Zapier scaled and I was able to not be as involved in various interview processes at keeping that rigor going. Like that's a really tough thing to do as you keep going. It's just hard. Hiring's hard. It's probably one of the hardest things in these scaling these companies. How do you approach the discovery process of understanding if they're a fit to the things that you're looking for? We tend to care about one, impact, two, like action-oriented, like they're really willing to roll up their sleeves, get things done. You know, we care a lot about intellectual honesty. So like, can they be straight about when they failed? Can they be straight about when they're successful? You know, just sort of like clear head on their shoulders in a lot of these areas. And so my interview techniques tends to just be like very story-based. I want to just hear like, tell me about a time when you did XYZ thing. And then tell me about the biggest impact you had at XYZ place then just ask a lot of probing questions. How did that work? How did that work? How did this work? How did that work? Now, my stage, I'm hearing a lot more like senior folks, you know, they're going to run a big teams. One of the challenges there is they get way too far from the details. They sort of end up being figureheads in the company versus truly the folks that are driving. And so those like probing questions help me get a sense for like how important were they really to making this happen versus how much were they just along for the ride? So that's the tactic I work. And then for these senior roles, you can rely a lot on reference checks as well to go try and figure out what makes these folks tick. In reference calls, the thing I like to do is ask what I call contrast questions to really understand how this person did in those scenarios. And I think that the reason I ask these contrast questions is because oftentimes you're talking to folks that generally like the person. So they're just going to have good things to say. And so you really got to get them thinking about what makes this person awesome. So a good example of a contrast question is like, Okay, say I keep talking to a bunch of the folks that this person work with. What are their strongest advocates going to tell me? And what are their strongest detractors going to tell me? And I want to just keep teasing apart these differences. Like, tell me about the type of environment you think this person thrives in. Tell me about the type of environment that you think they'll hate or wouldn't do so well at. Keep asking these types of questions to just keep pulling the bit apart. And I generally, I don't tell them like, this is what Zapier is in advance. Cause I just don't want them to like, tell me what I want to hear. I want to hear the genuine bits. And then you can go back to the person and just be really honest and say, Hey, I think these things about your experience and your past and your successes are really great fit for what we're trying to do. And here's some things where I don't know, like, I'm just not sure how are we going to make this work? And 
I think it's helped, especially for hiring senior folks. Now, early career folks, it's a whole other different ballgame because they don't have a long working experience. They may not know, you know, what they're at. And so I think you have to really try and figure out like what they do in school. What are they interested in? What are their hobbies are like? How hard do they work? You're looking for these intractable qualities that you called out and you're trying to say like, are those intractable qualities or those are the ones that really matter in this job? Or does their like superpowers not match this job very well? And if not, it's probably the wrong person to take a bet on because any early career person, you're placing a bet to a certain degree. And there's a lot of folks that for your specific company are probably worth placing that bet on because they match what you're trying to do. They match the mission. They match the work environment. They match the culture really well. And then there's probably a set of folks that are just like, yeah, it's just not a fit. It's not that you're a bad person. It's just there's a better company out there for you. One of my favorite contrast questions in the reference is saying, hey, let's assume we bring him or her on. Mm -hmm. Who do we need to hire to support them in order to be successful? I like that. And usually that gets them down the path of, oh, well, they're really weak in ops. He needs an ops person or they're really weak in brand. So you better make sure that you have a great agency that you can support them with. Usually it's an interesting way to backdoor where the weakness is. I love that. I'm going to add that to my bank. That's a good one. (laughs) (laughs) There has have to have been many points where you're like, okay, business keeps growing. Maybe the answer is just gut. But how do you know when you promote from within and give someone a scope of responsibility they've never seen before Mm -hmm. and then hire from outside? It's very tempting to hire from outside, but what you're missing is a bunch of the context that the person from within has. And I think we tend to discount that context. Yeah. Have you screwed this up? Yes. (laughs) Yes, I've screwed this up. You know, I've done a lot of hiring from the outside. I've done a lot of promoting from the inside. You called out the pros and cons pretty well there. I think in general, it's better when you have someone internally that you can promote into those jobs because they know the history of the company. They know the customers. They know the product. They know the mission. They know that stuff inside and out. The risk, of course, is that they're in the biggest job they've ever had. They just have certain experiences that they don't. And so the thing I think that separates the folks that I have seen do well is like those internal promos, like keep putting them, keep putting things on their plate is just like a relentless appetite to learn and just a sponge. And they're willing to go outside the inner world of Zapier to go learn those things. So they're like well-networked with other people. They're trying to like tap into other ideas and points of view, and they're just soaking all that stuff up and then bringing that back in and realizing like, okay, I can keep up if I'm willing to do a lot of that stuff. Because it allows them to basically get the things that you would get if you were to go try and hire someone externally. The challenge is, is like the rate at which these companies grow is just really fast. The thing I think a lot of folks who are in these jobs, until you've experienced, you don't really appreciate it, is that when you think about most of the institutions that we're a part of in our lives, none of them look like these companies. When a new kid is born, We throw in massive parties because the family grew by one. We added one person to this family. And it's so exciting to have a new person in the family. When you go to school, you have a class size of 15 to 25 people or whatever. And that's what your class sizes are for a long time. When you play on a sports team, sports teams have fixed 
people on it. There's five people on a basketball court, 11 on a football field. You know, if you're part of a church group or a club or any of these sorts of things, they're relatively static in their size. Most companies are relatively static in their size. You know, they grow a couple percentage points a year, and that's a phenomenal growth rate for most companies. But the companies that we're a part of, the growth rates are phenomenal. You know, when you're in the early stage, you're doubling year over year. And then later stage companies, you could be growing 30, 40, 50% year over year off a pretty big base. That's kind of mind breaking because if you are a person and you are a fast learner, yeah, you might be fast learner for these static environments. And you might pick up on things quick for these static environments, but it's not just enough to be a fast learner. You have to learn faster than the rate at which the company is growing to be able to keep up in these top jobs. And so the side effect of that is that there's just very few people inside your company that truly can keep up and get promoted into those jobs. That I think is the thing that is really tough in these companies. The conversation I had to have with folks many times over is like, hey, the fact that you failed in this job, that's not an indictment on you. You've done really good work. You've grown a lot inside this company. You you might be 25% better than you were the year before. The challenge is Zapier's 50% bigger now, and that's not enough. And that's just tough, but it doesn't mean the person failed. It's just this weird artifact of how fast these companies grow. I think it's really well said. And it's also one of the things that separates founders and great founders. It's like, well, you don't really have a choice. You have to scale at that rate. If you don't, it's trouble. Company's screwed. And... The good news is founders generally have the benefit of the doubt. It's their company. The bad news is you go down with the ship if you can't scale. And the really hard part is that the last thing on your mind when you're like creating your first zaps is how am I going to scale? What you're thinking about is, I hope this company works. I hope there's another five people behind this customer, you know, or when you added the workflows and it doubled. In my experience, what most people are thinking is, I hope this continues. I hope we keep growing it. I hope it spikes up and then it doesn't spike back down. Not, how am I going to keep up with the spike? It's more like, man, I hope this lasts. Mm -hmm. Then it becomes really hard because your paranoia is like, well, This is an ephemeral thing. There's no way this could keep going. And if it does, well, then I'll deal with the scaling problem later. (laughs) You know, next thing you know, it continues to scale and now you have a scaling problem on your hands. Well, and I think that's how you should think about it too. Like the reality is the learning has to be just in time to a certain degree. You know, there's no sense in like trying to optimize for scale when you're not ready for it. You know, when you just need five more customers, the thing you should be obsessing about is like, how do I find five more customers? Not how do I go hire the next 10 people inside the company? It's like, that's just a waste of time to be go spending that. That's the part that also makes it challenging is it's got to be compressed. Now, to your point, founders get a lot of cheat codes. Like we get huge networks of people that are here to support us and help us and grow. There's a weird thing, especially in early stage companies, you know, if the founder quits, the company falls apart. So it's not like you can fire the founder and then go hire somebody else in to run the job because no one else wants to be the CEO of a 10 person startup that's not successful and hasn't found product market fit and da 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 da. It's like the founder is the company in those stages of the game. And then, you know, CEOs get a superpower too, which is that 
they can hire. And so you can hire people to backfill the places you're weak and all that other stuff and it allows you to keep scaling and growing, which is trickier than any of the other functions where it's like, no, you are hired in to be the expert at this particular thing. You have to be the best in the company at this thing. You get a few cheat codes that help you with how incredibly difficult the job is. I've watched and listened to all your interviews and you have this expression around like, look, we were first time founders, like we didn't know. And it got me thinking, were there times, especially when the company was actually working, that you doubted that you were the right person for the job? I think that's called like a day that ends in a Y, (laughs) like honestly. (laughs) You still feel that? All the time, all the time. You feel that more than you don't. Yeah, I don't know. Like, you just go back and forth. A day that ends in a Y. (laughs) I mean, you just go back and forth is the honest answer. Like, I think it's like you keep growing, you get more exposed to like these smart folks, talented folks, and you start to go like, gosh, what would they do if they were running this company? I'm sure they'd be better in this way. What would this person do if they're, I'm sure they could solve this problem better than I could. But then you also think, yeah, but this company that we're running, like, it's doing pretty good. I must be doing okay. Like, I must be doing all right at it. And I think the thing that's just helped me is you just exposure to self to more and more people. And each of those people have a mental model of like how they would run their company, how they would do a thing, how they would make a decision, what choice would they make? And so you accumulate all these little personas, all these little ears that sit on your shoulders over the years. And so 13 years in, I have way more of these people than I did on year one. And so now anytime a hard decision comes up, you can just go down and say like, what would this person, how would they make the decision? And it just allows you to like explore the universe of ideas way, way faster. And you start to realize, okay, I actually have all these people, maybe not actually working on the company, but I have like a weird persona of them sort of running the company. And then I get to bring the thing that's unique to the table. And that's passion for the mission, care for the customers, care for the product in this specific instance that none of those folks would have if they got hired in. Maybe one of them might, like if it was actually the perfect folks, but you know, not everyone is the sort of founder CEO job. It, it is a fit thing. There are great CEOs that have been great at one company and failed miserably at the other. And I think a lot of times it boils down to like, were they a fit for that specific thing? And you have to get that right. That's not easy. Are there any personas or people that you tend to lean on? Are there people that the devils and angels in your ears? Are there certain types of people that you generally harness for certain types of decisions? Well, I mean, like, you know, we went through YC. So PG is always just like little metronome in the back of the head on certain topics. And then you read stuff about Jeff Bezos and Steve Jobs and Elon Musk and like all these folks. So you, those folks, of course, you know. But then there's like, you know, Jeff Lawson a time or two and hear what he has to say. And then there's folks that are, that are closer to the company. So like J.A. Simons is on our board. So you hear what he has to say. And then there's people that no one on this podcast would know, but folks that worked at Zapier or folks from my family or my life. And like all these folks just, it's an accumulation of wisdom over the years. And not everybody is like a grand figure or anything. There's a lot of folks that are just They're just people, but they had a particular point of view, a way of thinking that sort of sticks with you. And you've seen that little bit of wisdom work. And so you just kind of keep going back to that watering hole time and time again. So this is like as as many people as you can. Bruce Lee has this fighting style, the way of no way. And I like this concept where his fighting style was so unique. And the reason why is like he would study all the different fighting styles and he would say, you know, none of them are the best or the worst. They're all just a style. And my job was to take the best of each and then discard the rest and make it my own. That's kind of the approach I try and take. It's like you try and marry the best of what you see in all these other folks 
And then you discard the rest, um, the stuff that you don't think is relevant or useful or helpful in the context that you're in. I think it's really well said. When OpenAI released the GPT, what, three and a half probably, one of the first businesses, honest to God, that I thought of was Zapier. Because on the one hand, I'm like, this could eat their company. Like you could just tell these LLMs to go do the integrations. But then on the other hand, I'm like, I guess it could also supercharge their company. And I've seen, by the way, I've even seen some companies have to basically redesign their entire architecture because these LLMs are doing it better. Now, I don't even know if that's eating it or supercharging it, but how did you think about it when this all started to come about? I mean, we asked pretty much the exact same question you did. It was like, is this going to tank the business or is it going to supercharge the business? And yeah, I can spin a story that it's both, honestly. <laughs> um, but I think at the end of the day, the more practical thing is like, well, what are you going to do about it? And for us, the mission for Zapier was always, we want to make automation work for everyone. And on one hand, we've done a good job at that. But on the other hand, we still come across folks every single day. In fact, most folks come across it and say like, it's still hard. Setting up a Zap requires turning a lot of knobs. And we look at LLMs and say, you know what? This actually ends up being like a really powerful tool to give to a non-technical user because now instead of having to go like turn all these knobs, they can just explain what they want. And we've got all this history, all this data of how these apps get configured, the ways in which they should work together. And if we're able to take the natural language definition of how a human would describe this and translate that into a workflow, it feels like that supercharges it more than anything. You look five years out, 10 years out, I think we're all going to be pretty fascinated to see where, how these LLMs evolve and what they're capable of. Our job is to just figure out how to make the technology the most applicable to the end user as possible without giving too much of our internal strategy here. <laughs> how do you think about productivity or efficiency gains internally leveraging the tool with your employees? Our approach to this was, I'll just kind of give the timeline. So Brian and Mike, my two co-founders, started working on full-time working on AI a little bit before the launch of ChatGPT. I think it was maybe a couple months before. In fact, they'd actually built an SMS tool that worked a lot like ChatGPT. And every morning I'd wake up and like text that stuff and give answers back like ChatGPT. So when ChatGPT launched, I was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Because <laughs> like I'd sort of experienced it before. It was pretty cool. You know, before the launch of ChatGPT, they'd already sort of figured out hey, this is going to be really important for our business. We need to be thinking about this stuff. But it was kind of off to the side a little bit. ChatGPT launches and we're like, okay, like this is happening a lot faster than I think even most people thought. So we started to spin up some small initiatives in certain parts of the business to like really get going with it. By the time February of the next year had rolled around, we had our retreat and uh, get all the company together. Most folks in the company still aren't super dialed into like what's going on in AI, but we invite a customer in who's built a couple zaps with OpenAI and like has done some really cool stuff with it. And then we run some workshops with Brian, Mike, and a few others that are like really know AI inside of Zapier and figure some of these things out. And all of a sudden we go from like, you know, small pocket of the org knowing about it to now everyone knows about it. And there's an increasing percentage, let's call it five to 10% that are really excited about where it could apply inside their business. Around that same time, I really encourage a lot of organic adoption of this technology in whatever part of the business. I want to see it in the product. I want to see us exposing capabilities to our customers. And I want to see us using it ourselves for our own personal productivity, for org productivity, figure out ways to adopt it to make you better. 
but I'm pushing more in an organic way. I'm not saying you go do this, you go do that, you go do that. And in some parts of the company that organic pick works, you know, things start to take hold. And then there's other parts of the company where I'm like, you know, y'all really should be going faster on this stuff. This should be happening. And it's just not. Now I hadn't mandated it, so it's not going. And so I start to see that and start to realize like, ah, we got to figure this out. Then GPT-4 launches and you're like, okay, like this is really moving pretty quick here. You know, of course, all around, it's not just OpenAI. There's many other projects that are going on. But, you know, I feel like the AI timeline sort of fits with <laughs> what OpenAI AI is doing. We sort of demarcate time that way. You know, when that happens, I'm like, okay, it's not enough for this to sort of be organic bottoms up. And so we decide, you know what, we're going to do a hackathon inside everybody in the business. So 100% of folks, you don't have to do your day job over the next week. Your entire goal is to go learn the technology, play with the tools. If you're an engineer, go build something. If you're not an engineer, at least be an end user of these products, figure out where they could work for you or not. And that was a big unlock for the whole company because now everybody sort of has the like eyes wide open. Like, okay, we understand. Full week off. Yeah, full week off. Let's go tackle this. And, you know, there was probably a few exceptions, but we really tried to minimize exceptions. We really wanted to see everybody sort of roll their sleeves up and go experience what this is. And today, over 50% of the company uses AI as part of their day job some way, somehow. And we have a whole suite of our existing products. We have a whole suite of folks where there's AI capabilities that really help the product work better help you take advantage of the existing functionality. We have AI first things that wouldn't have been possible that allow you to do stuff before. We've got new products that are coming that were just built AI first entirely. And so this just continual push to like get our folks reorienting your mind. This is a paradigm shift. And so we need to shift too. you know, paid off. It definitely was like disruptive for folks internally and folks were like a little nerve wracking. But I think on the other side of it, folks are also excited and energized. Like people want to be a part of the future and AI is just super fun to work on. This space is moving so quickly and the potential really does feel like you're living in a sci-fi movie. And so for the internal employees, yeah, you tolerate this disruption because now you get to work inside of a company that really feels like it's kind of on the forefront of doing some of these things. Of the 50% of folks that are using it daily, what are some of the top or interesting use cases that you've seen? Our support team uses it all over the place to help with generating replies to customers, to help with troubleshooting and debugging, some internal tools we built around this to really help. We've got our marketing team uses a lot to help with building templates. A big part of our business is like just zap templates. Like this is a template you should use. Scaling those up and making those really quality is tough. The team's built a few like internal AI tools that really helps us do that a lot faster. And so the scale at which we can do that is probably 10x what it was before. The sales team uses it a lot to help again with prospect outreach, creating emails, a lot of research related stuff that's going on there. So the go-to-market side of the org is an end user of it a ton. Engineers, a lot of common stuff that we, most folks have probably heard before. A lot of people use it as like a co-pilot for writing code, things like that. Yep. So those are probably the most common. There's a bunch of unique stuff too, though, that folks use just by setting up Zaps. Zapier before AI was really great at working with structured data. You know, you're going to take this data from this field and you're going to move it from that data to this field. But one of the challenges is it didn't do well with unstructured data. You just like send it a blob of stuff. And it's like tough to deal with. The cool thing about AI is you can you know, put an open AI step or any of these anthropic or any of these things in the middle of a zap. And now you can feed it unstructured data and have it do unique things from it. So you can just feed it emails and say, you know what? I don't want the whole email. I want you to extract phone numbers and 
addresses and invoice numbers and payments. And you can take all this stuff that's unstructured and now you can make it structured. So if you want to send it into a database or send it into a CRM or put it into an invoicing tool, you don't have to worry about it coming in in these unstructured ways, like an email, a PDF, a web page, any of these things, you don't control the structure of that. And so there's a ton of folks using things internally to manipulate unstructured data and make it way more usable for other types of bits. And then, you know, these models are just really great at certain things. It's great at unstructured data. It's great at generating content. It's great at customizing, tweaking. It's great at brainstorming, content creation, which all this stuff is like super useful in different types of fields. Like marketers love this stuff because it's such a great tool for content creation. You know, some folks are using it to just generate the end state. The best folks don't do it that way. They generally use it as a sidekick, as a component to like help them. And then they insert themselves in there to like up-level what the output of the LLM is. So anyway, those are like a handful of use cases that come to mind off the top of head where we see like a lot of adoption. You mentioned sales is using it. When did you get a sales team? (laughs) We started doing it probably about, I'm going to say two years ago. We started layering in sales assist, like bottoms up inbound sales team. 11, 12 years into the company. Yeah. Okay. Do you wish you did that earlier? Yeah. Probably wish I'd have done it at least a year, maybe two years earlier. Why? We almost did it on three other occasions before this. The first time we decided not to because the self-serve business was working so stinking good and we were just struggling to keep up with that. We were just like, there's so much left to be optimized here and we just can't keep up. The second time we almost did it, we were launching our teams and companies products and thought around that same time. But we ended up sort of saying no again, because it was like, there's still so much that we're just trying to figure out with the core business. The third time, I think we should have said yes. And we didn't. The fourth time we said yes. (laughs) All roads lead to sales at some point, but you held out longer than I've seen most companies. We were just getting pulled into it so much from like customers were using the product in these larger organizations. At a certain point, you're just like, okay, like we were actively not helping them. And we're like, we need to do a better job. And so a couple of years back, we just very intentionally said, okay, we need to be better at this. And we took product teams, we took go-to-market teams, and we actively made the product better for them. We made the go-to-market model better for them. We made the service model better for them. We still have more to do here, but Zapier looks very, you know, two years ago, three years ago, if you'd have said Zapier's not fit for an enterprise buyer or something like that, that was fair critique, 100%. Today, if you're making that claim, that's not true. You haven't kept up with what Zapier's doing. Yeah, there's probably certain use cases we may not be a great fit. Maybe you haven't sold a particular product, but we made a lot of progress on this front in the last couple of years. Dude, I appreciate you doing this. Really fun. I wish I could have come to to Missouri, (laughs) but maybe soon. Are you all hiring? Yeah. Anything in specific that you're hiring for? We got roles across the company. You know, we're always looking for talented engineers. We've got, you know, a handful of leadership roles across the organization. A lot of engineering right now, some in marketing, some design, quite a few design roles. So uh, a few sales. So yeah, just, just across the org, across all levels. When you hear the word grit, what do you think of? I think of like pro sports, honestly. I can think of the athletes that like really put in the effort day in and day out. But the one that really sticks with me is I had this old boss when I worked at the mortgage company. He had a company before that and he named it Plus One Marketing. And when he tells the story of why he made Plus One Marketing, he's like, Plus One just stood for every day we got to show up and just do one thing better. And to me, that's mostly what grit's about. It's about showing up at the gym when you don't want to work out. It's about doing the thing, you know, when you don't want to do it. And 
you know, I think that's how people get great at stuff is like, yeah, you're going to love it most days, but some days you aren't. And grit's just about showing up and just putting the effort in because you know it's the right thing to do over the long haul. Wade Foster, thank you. Thank you. This is fun. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to come back every Monday morning to listen to a new guest or go back into the archives when we've done more than 100 episodes. This podcast is a Kleiner Perkins production and the episode was edited by Eric Johnson from Lightning Pod. Thank you all.